Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Please turn with me to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And a word to you as we come to the time of proclaiming God's, God's word. Um, I was here this morning for the Sunday school class on church history that Pastor Baker gave. And I decided as I was strengthened by Stephen's teaching to... Um, to admonish, to exhort, to rebuke, to encourage. Don't you just love to be encouraged? Not you, David, but everybody else. (laughs) David just gave me a a look like, no. (laughs) Sometimes you have to have your coffee in the morning. An awful lot of you don't go to Sunday school. And if I were to ask you why, you wouldn't have any good reason at all. That's the truth. Thank you for laughing, Jody. Um, And so often I think I'm too important to come to Sunday school. I have to do work out in the foyer and in my office. This is stupid. And so when, um, when these guys prepare to feed us, from God's word, from the annals of church history. You want to be here. You missed it this morning, let me tell you. Um, How many of you were here for Stephen's class? And let me tell you, we all agree you missed it. It was a wonderful account of the life of John Calvin. And uh, my life changed because of that Sunday school class. You think I'm kidding you? I'm not. Um, just hearing about these wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ across the centuries who have done so much for the Lord and and thought so little of what they did. And so I really strongly admonish, exhort, encourage, rebuke, whatever you want, whatever word, pick it, you know. If you're Dutch, pick rebuke. Um... But I really encourage you to come to those classes. Um, It requires you to get up a little earlier. It requires you to discipline your children who don't want to go to Sunday school, maybe. Or your wife who doesn't want to go to Sunday school. Or your own laziness in not thinking on Saturday night about what Sunday's all about. I don't know what it requires from you. I know for me it just requires a teensy-weensy little bit of humility. So I hope next week Stephen's class will be full. Did I do a good job? All of you that think that I did a good job, would you raise your hand? Thank you very much. Okay, let's go to scripture. Genesis 15, 1 to 21. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Actually, I'm only going to read through verse 6 this week. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given me no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Now, it starts our text this morning with the statement after these things. And so we're immediately drawn back to what preceded the text. And what preceded it was the kings from the east coming 
and fighting against the kings in the west, which included the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah. And they took Lot, who lived in Sodom, captive, along with his household, with the people who were a part of his household, and with his wealth, his possessions. And so Abram, when he heard of it, went and, and liberated Lot, his possessions, his, his, his family. And when he brought them back, you heard last week from the sermon, he brought them back, and when he brought them back, he tithed the booty of the war. A tenth of it he gave to Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God. Then we remember that when the king of Sodom tried to get Abram to keep some of the wealth, Abram said no. And do you remember why he said no? He said no because he did not want that king ever saying later on, that Abram was rich because he had given him wealth. And so this seems to indicate that Abram knew that there was a good chance of jealousy and envy. He didn't want to be beholden to the king of Sodom. Didn't want to be beholden to him. And so he wouldn't take any of the wealth that was offered to him. And so those are the things that this is after. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. Now, normally, when we think of the word of the Lord coming to us, we think in terms of either preaching of Scripture or the, the teaching of Scripture, or we think of reading the Bible. We think of the word of the Lord as being Scripture, right? And if we don't think of it being Scripture, we think of it being in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and so the word then is Jesus Christ. But here, the word of the Lord does not come through Scripture because Scripture has not been written. Here the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. It didn't come in scripture. It did not come written down in the only holy book. I am very, very tired of Christians signaling to our culture that they're reasonable by referring to God, the triune God, and referring to God's book as being something like my holy book or my scriptures. There are no other scriptures except one book which has been written by the Holy Spirit. And this book was referred to by Calvin as um, the Holy Spirit's... Uh, the, 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 the men that actually wrote the actual words of scripture referred to by, by Calvin as the Holy Spirit's notaries. All right? And so this book is God's special revelation. Nature is his general revelation. This is his special revelation. These are the only holy scriptures. All right? But they had not been written yet. And so we see that the word of the Lord came to Abram, it says, in a vision. Now it's very interesting at this point, there's an awful lot of conflict among Protestants. And what is the conflict? Well, this conflict is the moment at which, during which, in which, I met David Wagner. David, raise your hand so everybody knows who you are. David and I both were in front of a bunch of pastors and elders to be examined for entry into, at that time, I think it was called the Great Lakes Presbytery. I'd never heard of David Wagner. And... <laughs> I was just minding my own business. And all of a sudden, here was a man who was up in front of Presbytery saying that he believed that God still, at times, gives revelations to men, but not revelations in any way on the same level as Scripture, subordinate, but nevertheless that God has not stopped speaking directly to us. Calvin on this text takes a long uh, section to go on and on about how God no longer does speak to us in visions. And so what David was doing that day was David was saying that he does not believe Calvin's right at this point. Is that fair? You don't want to say that, right? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Calvin does say this. Yeah, I could read it to you from his sermon. And so why do a lot of Protestants, specifically Reformed Protestants, like the classic example in America today would be John MacArthur, 
the Reformed Baptists out in LA. Why do they say that God no longer speaks through visions, through dreams? Well, because, and this is, this is true of Calvin, they never want to say anything about God speaking to us that lowers our commitment to and submission to the word of God. And so as they see it, any acknowledgement that God still does directly reveal to us in a vision today will lower the authority of scripture in our eyes, will lower our submission to scripture. Now, neither David nor I, and, and by the way, that was the same position I held at the time. And so I was very encouraged to have David there articulating an intelligent defense of our position. Because that took the heat off me, right? And that's how I met David. And it was wonderful from the beginning. Now, what is the position that we should have on this? Well, it's a tricky issue because none of us want to denigrate the unique, infallible, which means inerrant word of God. Scripture doesn't make mistakes. Scripture is not the product of any man. Scripture testifies about itself that no scripture came about by the will of man, no interpretation. But holy men wrote as what? As they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. But that's not what it says. What it actually says is holy men wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And moved brings to our brain something a little more active and a little more authoritative than suggesting or inspiring, right? Then also it says about Scripture that all Scripture is theopneustos, which means God-breathed. So the words of Scripture, God says, are the product of his Spirit moving men, and the words of Scripture are God-breathed. And all around us, including me and you today, are people who believe that we are in a position to judge the word of God. All of us choose different places to judge it. There, there are many places that you don't like that I have no trouble with. All right? Many, many intelligent women and men believe that the account of creation is stupid. And so many people point to the first couple of chapters of Genesis and say, that's what I think is wrong. Now, they have different ways of saying it. They know that your hair would stand on end if they say, that's where I think it's wrong. And so they put together a, a group of associates called Biologos, you know, and, you know, it's, it's foreign language and it just sounds, you know, it sounds kind of spiritual, but the group exists to deny the first couple of chapters of Genesis, creation. And then there are people who talk about how Adam doesn't necessarily have to be uh, the first man, that um, Adam really could be just a figurehead for a tribe of hominids, right? And so you've got this professor, Jack Collins, down at Covenant Theological Seminary, who who thinks it's fine to have Adam not be a literal person, but a sort of tribe of kind of uh, hominids. What I, I don't know. What, what's a hominid? Is it like a biped? It's like a biped, but with one leg? And listen, I've, I don't say this out of pride. I have never had a problem with creation. I don't have a problem with it. Sorry. Sorry. When God spoke, I believe God's words were powerful and that they created. I just don't have a problem with it. I don't have a problem with Adam having a belly button. I don't have a problem with God speaking trees into existence that had 500 years of rings. I don't have God speaking a rose into existence that already has a bud. Do you understand? Once 
you hear scripture saying, no, but I tell you, unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. It seems a very simple thing to put my big brain to the side and to realize that if God is capable of calming the sea and if God is capable of raining fire and brimstone down on Sodom and Gomorrah, if God is capable of raising his son from the dead, of standing the sun still until the end of the battle, and if God is capable of bringing my proud, wicked heart to my knees, what's creation? It's very interesting. In in his sermons on this text that Calvin talks several times about the stars as being, quote, infinite, unquote, in number. 500 years ago, this is what Calvin says about the number of the stars. And Calvin says again and again about the stars in his sermon on this text that God created all of it in an instant. And so we sit there and we judge Calvin and we think, well, this stupid man, you know, this was back at the beginning of... uh, the intelligence of the last 500 years, you know, he wasn't quite bright like Erasmus. You know, he, 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 didn't, he wasn't quite the humanist. He wasn't, he, wasn't, he wasn't educated. But of course, Calvin was educated. He was quite bright. His opponents were the first ones to tell you that. And so listen, All of us have different places where we want to deny Scripture. Many, many people deny Scripture in the first couple of chapters of Genesis. Many, many people have denied the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Many pastors, many bishops, many cardinals have denied that Jesus literally was raised from the dead. I put up on the blog yesterday a statement of a man who's a theologian at the Vatican and has been associated with the Congregation for the Sacred Doctrine of the Faith for uh, over a decade, one of the principal theologians. And this man says, Scripture nowhere says no to homosexuality. He can't find any place in Scripture where it says no to homosexuality. So that's where he has a problem with Scripture. There are men who are greedy. Men here today, greedy who have a real problem with Scripture saying that you can't worship, you can't love God and mammon. You have to make a choice. There are are women here who have a real problem with the inspiration of Scripture where it says, wives, submit to your husbands in everything. (laughs) You know, I mean, why did God have to add in everything? And so they say, well, you know, I believe that the Bible's inspired, but I'm not an inerrantist. And those two words in everything, I mean, think of the door opening to abuse there. (laughs) And so I'm going to say, okay, I'll sort of go along with wives submit to your husband, but certainly not in everything. I mean, are you telling me that when my husband says I should run over our two-year-old daughter with the car, that I should obey him? And my response is, yep, that's exactly what we're saying. Now, for those of you that might listen to this on the internet, (laughs) my facial gestures are such that everybody present knows that that's not what we're saying. And so, yes, there is great danger that we will not submit to Scripture. And there is great danger that we will say that our special revelations from God personally trump the word of Scripture. And so, yes, it's incredibly important that we recognize that all Scripture is God-breathed. This book is God-breathed. And it has absolute authority over your life. Nothing. No denial. No wisdom of man. No sophistication of education. No unbelief, no hard-heartedness trumps 
the word of God. None. That is the only position that orthodoxy all through history from the very beginning has had about scripture. And you say, oh, no, 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 no. There have been orthodox people who haven't had that doctrine of scripture. And I say, really? Okay, how about Jesus? Jesus was so rigid about scripture because Jesus again and again and again and again and again fulfilled scripture down to the very words. And when Jesus' life hung in the balance from the hatred of the people he was talking to, he quoted one of the most obscure psalms in the book of Psalms and did this like conundrum riddle thing to tie them up in knots on the meaning of words. When Jesus another time was challenged about the meaning of scripture, about the resurrection of the dead, he says, you neither know scripture nor the power of God. And then he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His whole argument rests upon the tense of the verb, right? I am. Not, I, I used to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I am. And so Jesus founded orthodoxy, and Jesus lived his life to fulfill every single word of Scripture. So yes, it is dangerous that we use visions and dreams to trump Scripture. And the visions and dreams sometimes come to us from a sociology or religious studies professor or, or the pages of Christianity today. And sometimes they come when we're asleep at night. And we get these, like, impressions. And we say, God spoke to me. God gave me a vision. God gave me a dream. And when these dreams, these visions, these inspirations take Scripture and reduce Scripture to a subordinate status so that we don't feel the need to honor Scripture or to obey it, they must be silenced by the Word of God. And so this is the reason why so often Protestants have said, no, nothing is given today. God already gave it. And so Calvin goes on at great length saying that when Abraham has Moses record God's vision to him and the promises that came through that vision, that vision belongs to you and to me today. It's now been recorded. We don't need God to have a special revelation for us that says, don't be afraid. I will be your shield and I will reward you greatly. Because he said it to Abram, and that belongs to you. All right? On the other hand, okay, so this is my argument. Yes, absolutely, Scripture is supreme. Scripture is without error. Scripture is our only infallible rule of Come on, say it. Faith and practice. It's our only infallible. Not your grandmother, not your dad, not your religious studies professor. Certainly not your religious studies professor. Now, so what's the argument on the other side? Well, the argument on the other side is that I have had God give me direct directions. And that's yikes, yikes, and double yikes, right? But have I ever told you about the direct directions, the direct commands that God has given me? Well, no. I mean, maybe some of you have heard them, but probably very, almost none of you, right? And so these are not things we talk about with each other. But there are times where God makes it very clear that we're to do something, right? Like, for instance, this morning as I'm driving over here, it's very clear to me that I should set my cruise control. Even though it's 6 o'clock in the morning and most of the way over here, I can have my, high, my, my headlights on high. That I should set my speedometer, my cruise control, a little lower. And you say, well, we know that because the Bible says that we're to submit to those in authority over us. And the speed limit's 50. And so you don't need to talk about any special impression from God. Just 
tell us the Bible says submit to those in authority over you and tell us that you lowered your speed limit. Yeah, but I tell you, there was some insistent voice in me. You say, well, that's not a vision or a dream. That's not God speaking to you. That's just your conscience. Okay, it's just my conscience. That's why I found it so easy to just dismiss it. So on the way over here, I, you know, upped it and then downed it and then upped it. I, I played with it a couple of times with my conscience speaking to me. Took it up, watched this, took it down, took it back up a little bit, and then felt bad after I took it up. It's like three times. But it's just my conscience. I'm a Pharisee. And so I play with the cruise control, and that's how I process my spirituality and obedience to God. So I deal with the issue of my conscience as a way of avoiding dealing with very, very much more serious things. Right? There's a woman I love, and I know she's an idol to me. I know she is a replacement for God in my life, this woman. And God makes it very clear to me, personally, that I must not touch this woman. Right? And you say, oh, well, but Scripture says that you shall not commit adultery, and that includes fornication if you weren't married. And I say, yeah, yeah, it was just Scripture. And then... I tell you about dreams I've had. And then I tell you about other things that have happened to me where I wasn't asleep. And I imagine that many of you can say the same thing has happened to you. I know it happened to Rita Cuffey. And with Rita, it was God speaking to her, and she's the mother in Israel of our church who died a few years ago, so she probably is the person out of everybody in this church that we have most respected as a congregation, Rita Cuffey. And I remember Rita Cuffey telling me that God had revealed to her personally that her husband would repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And I met with her weekly, and I'd hear her say this probably about every six months, and I'd think about Jimmy. And I'd think, oh, Rita, you know how they say it in the South, yeah. Oh, Rita, bless your heart. Which is patronizing, and it's sort of my way of, you're so sweet, you know? And then as he got older, we all watched as Jimmy repented and believed in Jesus Christ. It was inconceivable. Jimmy was the greatest skeptic that I knew in Bloomington. You know, the one Sunday where I preached only by reading the Sermon on the Mount. So I was beginning a series on the Sermon on the Mount. The first Sunday, I just read the Sermon on the Mount. That's all I did. That was the Sunday that Jimmy was most skeptical and angry as he walked out of the sanctuary at what had been said. So I couldn't take it personally. And this man, God had told his wife that he would repent and believe. And she believed God. And it was credited to her as righteousness. And God gave her the soul of her husband. And he was every bit as wicked as I am. And it was a wonderful thing. And I've seen this in my life where godly people uh, have things revealed to them. Right? Now, I know that generally, Protestants of our type don't go around telling people that they've had visions and dreams. What we generally say is, well, I was praying, and... And what that's supposed to indicate is that as we prayed, the Holy Spirit gave us a special revelation, which we're now acting on, but we don't say it. I was praying, the Holy Spirit gave me a special revelation, which I'm now acting on. We just say, you know, the other day I was praying... And, and that's how we take the name of the Lord our God in vain. We mention prayer, and everybody who's intelligent understands that by mentioning prayer, we're saying that God directed us to do something. Or we say, um, 
uh, I, I received a prompting, or I felt. Sometimes we take the word God's name in vain by saying, I felt. And everybody there knows that we're claiming that God was the one that make, made us felt. This last week, I was down in South Carolina, and after one of the uh, meetings that we had, I was talking to a couple, and this woman came up, interrupted us. And she, for the second time in a day, was in my face telling me how God had told her to go here, and then had led her there, and then had shown her this, and then had spoken to her here, and she, I mean... Her mother didn't need to worry about her self-esteem. And she was telling me this. Why? Well, she was telling me this to flatter me. Because what she was saying to me was, the Holy Spirit took me from church to church and showed me how all of these churches are unfaithful to him. But you are different. And so I knew it was absolutely true that the Holy Spirit had spoken to her. <laughs> because I love the flattery. And I love to realize that I was completely different than everybody else. Because that must be holiness. And so there is a real danger today that people will speak of visions of dreams, of God speaking to them, of prayer, of being inspired, of having a sense of the Spirit, of all this stuff. And we're taking God's name in vain, and God has not spoken. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't speak directly to us. It doesn't mean that God does not confront us personally and specifically. It does not mean that God does not show us things that we need to know in order to follow him. And so, when God came to Abram, God gave him a vision. I don't believe that visions and dreams are done. But whatever vision and dream you have, it always must be subordinate to the revelation of God's word. And I would add, subordinate to those who are in authority over you. This is the reason why Scripture says, well, I won't go into that. I'll stop. All right. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, so now this is what the Lord said to Abram in a vision. Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. So from this, it's clear that Abram was afraid. He was fearful. Otherwise, God would not have reassured him, telling him not to be afraid. Now, what was Abram afraid of? We don't know. It doesn't say, but it's likely, I think, that the king of Sodom, when he was put off, that was an indication when Abram put him off that Abram was afraid of jealousy. And so Abram goes off. He has a lot of servants. They whoop up on the enemy. They bring back the booty. They bring back the people. They bring back Lot. And you can imagine how jealousy and envy would permeate the whole area that Abram lived in. And what evil is done in the name or because of jealousy and envy? Well, <laughs> just open your eyes. It's everywhere. In Scripture, it says this in James 3, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. You know, out in Oregon right now, they're not naming the man. Why are they not naming him? Well, because they know that by not naming the man, they're robbing him of the very thing he wanted, which was for his name to be as well known as other wicked murderers had their names known. And so jealousy and envy causes people to kill 10, 20, 30, 40 people. They just want their name to be known. Jealousy and envy is what causes siblings to kill each other, right? We've, we all know Cain and Abel, and many of us have seen this in our own children. Jealousy and envy is what causes husbands for decades to go to bed angry at their wife. The jealousy and envy 
of a godless husband who hates his wife and because of his envy of her godliness. And so where jealousy and envy exist, every evil thing exists. And so we can easily imagine that Abram was afraid because of the jealousy and envy of the other kings surrounding him. And so whatever the reason was that Abram was afraid, the response to his fear on the part of God is to give him a command. And the command is do not fear Abram. You know, sometimes you read things in Scripture that you're sure you've never seen before. And in the last year, maybe year and a half, all of a sudden I see in Scripture the constant command in Scripture, do not be afraid, do not fear. You know, this command is all through Scripture. It's everywhere. And you say, duh. And I say, yeah, I should have known it, but I didn't. But the thing that's interesting to me is not that Scripture says don't be afraid all kinds of times. The thing that's really interesting to me is that it's always a command. In other words, I knew that scripture was reassuring all the time, but I never got it into my brain that it's not reassuring, it's actually commanding us, do not be afraid. In other words, God does not want us to be afraid. It's not that God enjoys us being afraid because then we can be reassured by him. It's God does not want us to be afraid. God commands us not to be afraid. Once you have eyes to see this in scripture, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's here with Abram. It's with the Jews when they leave Egypt. It's with the Jews when they're at the edge of the promised land, when they were afraid, what? They all died in the wilderness. Remember that? 40 more years. But when they did come to the edge of the promised land and there were giants in the land, God said, don't be afraid. God said, don't be afraid all through the Old Testament. Jesus is constantly saying, don't be afraid. He comes to the disciples on the the water. There's this huge storm in the Sea of Galilee. He commands them not to fear. When the angel comes to Mary, she's told not to be afraid. When God speaks to Joseph, Joseph is told, don't be afraid. Jesus, in Luke 12, 32, says, do not be afraid. And then there's a little phrase that I love. Do any of you know what comes next? Do not be afraid, that's right. Do not be afraid, little flock. You in there with me? Little flock. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. (laughs) Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. This is God's posture towards us. He knows that we're a little flock. He knows we can't do anything for ourselves, just like sheep. And it gives him pleasure to give us the kingdom, gladly. I also love it where it says that when we ask for wisdom, we should trust that God is happy to give it to us. And then it says, without finding fault. In other words, our Heavenly Father is completely different from our earthly Father, who is never glad to give us anything, and who always finds fault when we ask for his counsel. I'm looking for you to be laughing. But you're not laughing. I'm not sure why that is. But isn't that the way all earthly fathers are? They're always finding fault and they never give us anything gladly. No, okay. Well, it wasn't true of my dad, but I thought it was of yours. Then God commands two reasons for commanding Abram not to be afraid. Do not fear, Abram. Number one, I am a shield to you. And number two, your reward shall be very great. The first reason is defensive. God says that he will protect Abram. How? By being a shield to him. What is a shield? A shield is an instrument of war that protects you from arrows, swords, bullets, bombs, 
Whatever your enemy is going to bring at you, the shield protects you, and the shield is God. Now remember that this promise is for you. You are a child of Abram. Abram is your father. And so God is saying to you that he is your shield. Now it doesn't make any sense for God to be your shield if there's no war going on. And so what war in your life requires God to be your shield? What is the war in your life that requires God to be your shield? Remember that the Bible says we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers. The battle is not an earthly battle. It's spiritual. It's in the high places. And God says he will be our shield. And we think, well, what do we need a shield from? And then we remember, what does it say about Satan in Scripture? The Bible tells us that Satan roams like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And then God says to Abram, I will be your shield. And so you think of all the temptations that Satan sends to your mind, to your heart, to your home. And God is your shield. He's your protector. And then he says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. I'm a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Now, at this point, we have a dialogue. Up until this point, God has always spoken in a monologue to Abram. But here we have a back and forth between Abram and God, all right? And here we see that Abram responds to God saying, your reward shall be very great in a way that is perfectly natural if we had recorded here the, the, the exchange between a son and his father. If you were Abram, and God had promised that he will give you a great reward, at this point, what would you say to God? And we see it here. In verse 2, Abram said, Oh Lord God, what will you give me? In other words, what kind of a reward are you going to give me since I am childless? Now, why was Abram bringing up being childless? Well, if you go into the earlier chapters, we see that in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and what? I will make you a great nation. How is God going to make you a great nation if you don't have any children? And then we see a little later in that chapter, verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants I will give this land. And here's God promising to give him a great reward and he's not a great nation, and he doesn't have any descendants. And then, in chapter 13, verse 16, God says this to Abram, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. And so, Abram's plea is quite understandable, isn't it? Oh, Lord God, what will you give me, since I'm childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Well, this was Eliezer, and it would have been that having no children, no descendants, he would have designated Eliezer to be his executor, his, his heir, the one that would carry on from him when he died. But Eliezer was not Abram's son. He and Sarah had not given birth to this man. They had no children. And yet his descendants are supposed to be more than the dust on the earth. And so Abram's response to God is, is very, very understandable. Now I want to say something here that is, that is very offensive today. But it has to be said. We read Abram complaining about being childless... And we live in a time when childlessness is lifted up to a position of honor, right? I mean, the perfect life today is, is a hip and intelligent couple, both of whom have 
very good paying jobs who, who live, you know, in a city and who go out, you know, who bring takeout in every night except the weekends. Then they go out and they, they go on the web or they read the paper. Nobody reads a paper anymore, but they do something. They know where the hip place is to go, where the cuisine is nouveau, and where the wine list is in the Somalia, blah, 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 you know, all that life that Bob gives the men that care for him a taste of a couple of times a year. He didn't hear me because he's gone. But, you know, the life of Bob, right? And you can't do that with children. Children are inconvenience if you want to live the hip life that will get you to feel like you're in a sitcom. You know, like Seinfeld. Right? I mean, imagine if there had been children. Well, there were, but they were adults. <laughs> now listen. Here's Abram complaining about having no children. Why does he complain? Well, he complains because God has promised that his descendants will be more than the dust of the field. But that's not the only reason Abram complains. Abram complains because every single man who loves a woman wants his lovemaking to be fruitful. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's the thing I'm going to say that's offensive, right? And it's just so stupid. What did I just say that was offensive? I said, every man that loves a woman wants his lovemaking to be fruitful. Is that offensive? <laughs> and yet you listen to the songs we, you watch the movies we, you, you, you read the, the modern poetry, you read the modern novels. You, it's like everything in our culture is a conspiracy to deny that truth. I was thinking a couple months ago about a song from when I was young who you just wouldn't have the song today. If you listen to how popular music has changed, okay, it's unbelievable how it's changed. Now all the men are kind of, all the women are strong, and all the men are below average. You know, you listen to a man singing on the radio today, and the guy's like, and the woman is <laughs> you know? But it used to be that this was the kind of song you heard. Are you ready? You ready? Ready? When a man loves a woman. I mean, there's no songs like that today. And listen, if you want to understand the hatred in our culture for Christian faith, that's the center of homosexuality. It is because of God decreeing that homosexuals will never have children. Remember how I talked about envy earlier? Do you know what homosexuals have always referred to us as? They call us breeders. It, it's, it's jargon that they have, you know. You listen to blacks, they have jargons. White have jargon, you know. Southerners have jargon. Homosexuals' jargon is to refer to us and it's dissing us. It's not a compliment. They refer to us as breeders. Why? It's envy. God has set it up in such a way that it is the lovemaking of a man and a woman that produces fruit. And so when Abram says we're childless, we understand completely that when a man loves a woman, he wants fruit. Right? <laughs> but we're so twisted that we're bending over backwards trying to make sure that they can adopt and that artificial you-know-what and boop 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 and man, our whole society has focused its intense condemnation of God and his order of creation of man and woman precisely at the point of weddings. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, does anybody get it? Is anybody awake? Is there a reason? Now, does this mean I gloat? I take pleasure from the fact that two men who are involved intimately with each other can't have children. 
No, but that is the witness of God to them that it is an anathema what they're doing. And how can we back away from the witness of God if we expect God to save them as he saved us? There's not one of us here who came to Jesus Christ because God sent us Christians who were so delicate with us that they avoided the obvious. None of us have been saved by Christians who witnessed it to us by flattering us at the point of our sin. By denying the fruit of our sin, it's when God sends preachers of righteousness to us that we're saved. How dare people claim to love homosexuals who will not tell them the truth? It's wicked. And we're all so, so set on having Facebook likes that we lie to homosexuals. And I tell you something, if you want homosexuals to repent and believe, I guarantee you the way to do it is to speak to them about the sin of homosexual sex. There's no better place for someone committed to sexual immorality to see the mercy of God than their sexual immorality. There's no better place to give a feminist the privilege of coming under the blood of Jesus Christ and to go directly after their feminism. We don't mollycoddle them at their point of their sin. When has a policeman ever done this? You go by him 85 miles an hour in a 35 mile an hour zone and, and he stops you and says, did you know your seatbelt isn't on? <laughs> I mean, come on. Let the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, reform you. Don't become compressed in the world's mode. Don't allow the world to tell you how to think and witness to Jesus. Don't allow the world to intimidate you so that you avoid the obvious with the people you love. We love homosexuals here. They're here, in our midst, right now. And why are they here? They're here because we have gone to them and spoken to them that they must not do that. <laughs> and they go, okay, I won't. And they repent, they believe, and their life is cleaned. And that's why scripture says, in Corinthians, of such were some of you. Murderers, people here who have committed abortion. Yes, of course. That's why we'll go do the life chain. Homosexuals. And then some greedy men here who haven't yet repented. And typically those are the people that won't appreciate you talking to them about it. Because greed has such a good reputation in America today. Isn't it called the Kelly School of Business? Okay, all right. All right, I'll, I'll back off. How many of you here either teach or study in the Kelly School of Business? Now just tell me, you don't, you don't mind me saying that, do you? You have to watch out for greed in your life, don't you? And, and, and so, repent. You can't, love, you can't love God and love money. But all of us are here by repentance. That's what it means to come to the Lord's table. And so when Abram says, I'm childless, he's not just saying, and God, you require me to have descendants in order to fulfill your command. It's the mourn of his heart. And how can we not see that today? That God has made the love of a man and a woman for each other to be fruitful. You know what I spent part of yesterday doing? Going on the internet and trying to figure out why in the Dickens, my fruit trees won't give me fruit. <laughs> Imagine a rose bush that doesn't give you a bud. Love is to be fruitful. And Abram's heart cry is, you won't give me children. 
Where are my children? Where are my descendants? And so how does God respond? Verse 4, then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And it's so precious. God says, no, 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 no. It's not going to be him. I'm going to give you an heir from your own body. Now, that's what your Bible says, but that's not what the Hebrew says. We're always more delicate than God. You know, God made every part of your body to do precisely what it does. And so in the Hebrew, what does it say? In the Hebrew, what it actually says is, this man will not be your heir, but one will come forth from, and the word is the nether regions where the reproductive organs are, okay? So it can be called loins. It can be called, um, what does the King James say? The King James says um, bowels. That's right, bowels. The New King James Version cleans it up. And so if you look at the, the NASB that I use, which generally is the most faithful to the Greek and Hebrew, the NASB doesn't, doesn't allow you to know what it says. It says your body. Well, it's not your body, okay? This is my body. This is my body. This is my body. This is my body. That's not what it says. It says your bowels, your loins. <laughs> and all of us know that the loins are what we cover up, even when we're on the beach, unless we're insane in La Jolla at Black's Beach and homosexual. Why do translators think they must protect us from the words inspired by the Holy Spirit? Translators are such delicate men with such little faith in the words of God. And so we should pray for them and then demand better of them. And we should raise up our own sons to translate Scripture and to command them not to change it. Right? This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own loins, he shall be your heir. And so God is promising Abram that he will provide him his own descendant, his own flesh and blood, his own child, from his own loins. And then God reinforces his promise in a way similar to the way he reinforced it back in chapter 13 when he spoke of the dust of the earth. Here he says, and he took him outside, so God took Abram outside, and he said, now look towards the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Abram has no children. He's good as dead. You remember what it said in our scripture reading in Romans 4. And he is, remember, and he is good as dead. And Sarah, as bad as he was, right? And God says, look at the stars. Can you count them? At this point, Calvin says that the number of stars is infinite. How many stars are there? And he says, so shall your descendants be. Object lesson, right? Now, if you're there, and you're as good as dead, and God is saying to you, don't worry, I got you covered, dude. You're going to have more descendants than you can count. What is your response? We're going to pick this up again next week, but I tell you, based on your response at this point, hangs your soul eternally. Because what does God say at this point? God says, then he, referring to Abram, believed in the Lord, and he, referring to the Lord, reckoned it to him, referring to Abram, as righteousness. Abram believed in the Lord, and the Lord counted it, imputed it, reckoned it to Abram as righteousness. Now, I want to end by talking a little bit about this, and then we will come to the Lord's table. And I want to ask you this question. Do you believe God, or do you believe in your own righteousness? 
Yeah. You know, that's an easy question when the elders ask it of you coming for, uh, for membership because, you know, you can respond and you can say, well, I don't believe inside of me dwells no good thing. I don't believe in my own good works. Isn't that what it means to be a, a Protestant? And the elders say, good answer! And the dirty deed is done. You knew you were a Protestant, and they heard you being a Protestant, and so you're a Christian. But listen, in this church, do you know what the danger is in this church? The danger is not that you think you're a good person. The danger is that you think that all the descendants of Abram are saved. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? The danger to us is that we hear the promise of God that all of your children, to a thousand generations, I will be their God. We hear the promise of God, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And thy household. You know, we hear the promises to Abram and his descendants. And instead of thinking we're good, what we think is that anybody in the lineal descent from Abram or anybody in the lineal descent from you or from your husband or from your father or your grandmother, anybody in a lineal descent from godliness, unless they happen to be one of those very rare cases where it's like a cosmic bloop, and who knows where that came from, but other than that, everybody that's in a lineal descendant from Abram is saved. And so all over the country today, we have Protestants who believe that if you're the child of a Christian man, that you should be baptized right away and brought to the Lord's table right away, and that you're saved, and that you should always be treated as you're saved unless you're after time in some way that really is quite blatant you demonstrate that you're actually one of those bloop. Well, then what are you going to do? I mean, you have to acknowledge that it's, you're looking at a bloop. And so maybe after 10 years of somebody being a bloop, then you tell them they can't come to the Lord's table. I mean, do you understand this, people? Can I ask you, how many generations did it take for Abram's lineal direct descendant to be cast off by God? Abraham, Isaac, Esau. God is not impressed with our lineal genealogy. It, God is not impressed with our baptism. God is not impressed with our Lord's Supper, our Pado communion, our, our, our head of household. God is not impressed with patriarchy. God is not impressed with us. God is sovereign over our children. And our children are not saved because they genetically descend from us. And if you don't believe me, you just watch this church for the next 10 years. And try not to cry. Now, we don't think we're saved by being good, but we do think we're saved if our father's a Christian or a grandmother. But listen... What Calvin says here, Calvin is the one that says it here. In fact, just because you may not believe me, um, let me read it to you. He says, well, I better not do this. What Cal I'll just quote it, and you can find it here afterwards. But Calvin says that if you look at the number of Abram's descendants who God rejects, he basically says, it's constant. It's huge. And so what the Bible says is that Abram was a good man and God saw his goodness. But that's not what it says. It says that Abram believed God. And that God credited it 
to him is righteousness. In other words, here we have a man who was about as righteous as any man who's ever lived. You look at Abram and don't you dare look down on him because of lying about his wife. You've missed the point. Don't you dare look at David, look down on him because of his adultery and his murder. You've missed the point. These men are heroes of our faith. These are righteous men. All right? It's just that your deeds have not been exposed in the pages of Scripture the way David's and Abraham's were. It's one of the reasons I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture because it makes such a point of exposing the wickedness of its heroes. What other book does that? And so, yes, he lied about his wife, but look, Abraham got up and went to a place that God would show him. Can you imagine that? Yes, Abram took Isaac, the son that he loved, his only son. And he bound him to the altar. And he was about to kill him. And he proved to God that God meant more to him than his only beloved son. If there had ever been a man who God could have called righteous because of his own righteousness, it was Abram. But the Bible specifically doesn't say that. The Bible says that he believed in God. And that that God used as the means, the tool, whereby he applied to Abram the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He reckoned it to him as righteousness. And we're not talking about the righteousness of Sarai. Or Isaac, we're talking about the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's not explicit there, but what other righteousness is there for us to come before a holy God? There's only one righteous man, and that's Jesus. There's no other righteous man that we can come before God from. We'll pick this up next week, but I want to read Calvin in ending. Calvin is talking about this righteousness that comes from God that Abram's faith is used to apply to him, okay? And Calvin says this. He says, the Jews also are so blind and stupid, and this isn't a sermon. This isn't some exotic, private theological treatise. This is what he's preaching to his people. And he says, the Jews also are so blind and stupid that they do not know what these few words mean. Abram believed it was credited to him as. And then he says, and among Christians, we scarcely find one in a hundred who even appreciates the content of those words. We're going to pick back up with this next week. But spend the week meditating on the nature of belief and faith in God. And why it is that God refuses to let us jack him around by our sacraments and our circumcision and our lineal descent, God will not share his glory with any man. And you look at the Roman Catholic Church and what it claims for its sacraments. Look at it in all its horror. And it is an unbelievable machine for jacking God around based on physicalities. But God says, what? God says that the just shall live by faith. By faith.